Okay, Mark chapter 15, and uh, we are down now into about verse 27, but we'll start back up here at verse 24 just to kind of get where we're at. Um, again, as we come into Mark here, we're, we're, we're at the crucifixion, uh, verse 24, and when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, whatever man, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the subscription of the accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, again, with Mark, Mark is servant. Here's the point. He's, Mark bottom lines everything. Uh, Mark, there's 16 chapters in Mark. Um, there, so if you, uh, 15,771 words. If you took Matthew, 28 chapters, and you took out all of the excess dialogue, it's shorter than Mark. Do it with Luke, same way. N take out all the excess, it's shorter than Mark. John's the same way. Mark is cut and dry. Here's the point. Here's the bottom issue. And he's going to get into this thing here. That's why he says there in verse 25, and it was the third hour, and they crucified. I mean, just bam, no flower, no, no, nothing more. Now, the third hour, you have to remember, this is how the Jews, they didn't have a clock, okay? They didn't have a watch. They were watching the sun. They understood how to tell time by the sun. But yet the sun is up different. Have you noticed that? In the summertime, it's up, you know, early. In the winter, it's later. So you've got to remember that when he says the third hour, they don't have a clock like we do. They're judging it based on sun up, sun down. So I think sunrise was at the canyon, it was six something in the morning, okay? Well, we were up at 4 a.m. You know what's at 4 a.m.? It's dark. That's what it is. So when they, when they began here, so the third hour, in our thinking, would be 9, 9 a.m., okay? Uh, again, so it's the third hour after sunup. And again, Mark is going to just hammer this in here. By the way, he says, verse 25, uh, the, the third hour. Then if you look down at verse uh, 33, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So Mark is going to break this up in sections. So at, three, at 9 a.m., they crucify him. Then at noon, something's going to happen. And then at 3 p.m., something else is going to happen. So there's, a, there's this three-hour period. There's this period of time that's going to divide up the activity. And Mark is just going to, he's going to go bam, bam, and bam. Now, you'll notice, by the way, verse 26, the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And I know we talked about that last time. Come over to John 19. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on this superscription all say something a little different. And you have to understand, again, it's the perspective of each of the Gospels. While Matthew has him as king, Mark as the servant, Luke as man, but here is the full superscription, John 19, 19. Here's what the whole thing said. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So that's the total, the totality of it. And then each, again, if you go back there to Matthew 27, okay, Matthew 27, and then uh, Luke 23, Matthew 27, verse 37, get it there, and uh, set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then in Luke, or well, Mark 15, the King of the Jews. 
And then in Luke 23, verse 38, we find where Mark or where Luke tells us that it was written in the three languages of the day, Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And then in John, here's Jesus of Nazareth. And it's in John believing on who he is. Who is he? He's Jesus of Nazareth. He's Messiah. We did that thing Sunday morning about John 3.16, believing in him, in his name, the name of. And that's what it is. So when you come back to Mark 15, by the way, verse 26, Mark says, well, the king of the Jews. Why? That was the issue with who? With Pilate. See, Pilate, he, Pilate's not worried about him being Jesus of Nazareth or being Jesus. Pilate's concerned with the insurrection of the claim of he's making a claim to be a king, and there's no king but Caesar. So what's happening here? See, so when, when, when Pilate puts this over his head, it's not to draw attention to anything. It's actually to take Israel's nose and rub it in it. That's really what it is. It isn't, you know, when we saw the trial, we saw him go, you're really the king of the Jews? This is what the best they could do is you? Really? So, you know, there's a lot of that at hand here when... Um, when they, they say, verse 26, Mark 15, uh, the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews because that's the bottom line with Pilate. Pilate Mark takes it. Here's bottom line. There, the servant, we need bottom line. Can he do the work? We don't care about anything else. Here's the deal. Then in verse 27, and this is where we left off last time, Verse 27, with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, okay? So what Mark does now is he brings up the two thieves. Now this is in Matthew, Luke, and John because these guys are very important and they're very critical here. But yet... Mark is going to go right to the core issue. Come, uh, come on over to Luke 23. And what Mark is going to do here, because in Luke 23, we obviously we're going to get some more details, is the issue with the two thieves. Now, when they put the Lord and the two thieves up, they didn't do it saying, okay, look, we got to fulfill Isaiah 53. They didn't do that out of convenience. They just did it. It just happened to do what? Fulfill, it just happened to fulfill Isaiah 53. And these two thieves represent Christ being numbered with the transgressors, numbered with his people, okay? But yet it also represents the two groups within the nation of Israel spiritually. Physically, they all are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no, but spiritually, there's one group that's going to revile, mock, reject the Lord, and then there's going to be the other group that believes him, that little flock, that believing remnant, see. So the two are going to represent the spiritual condition within the nation of Israel. Luke 23, verse 39. 23:39. And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Now, this is the repentant thief, okay? And, uh, you know, yeah. by the way, hold on to Luke and come back here to Matthew 27. Because there's something here. Matthew 27. So you have in Luke 23, verse 39, the one, and one of the male factors, verse 40, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. Now, look at Matthew 27 and look at verse 44. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, 
cast the same in his tea. Now, what they did is that mockery. They issue back up in verse 41, 42, 43, okay? So these two guys start out, come on over to Luke 23, they start out reviling him, mocking him. But then apparently in 30, 39, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. So there's the mockery. But then in 40, what does the one say? Hang on a minute here. We deserve to be here. He doesn't. So something has happened with the one thief that has changed his demeanor. In the sufferings of Christ, in the the humility, the humbleness of, of Christ, the suffering here, it has caused one thief to recognize there's something different going on here. And he begins to, he changed. Now, verse 42, and he's, Luke 23, 42, and he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So something causes him to say, verse 42, Lord, remember me when you, thou comest into thy kingdom. He starts out rebelling, revolt, mock, and then there's a change in, of heart. And then there's a testimony, remember me. He becomes a believer, and he's confessing to Christ his faith. And the Lord answers him, verse 43, with such an assurance of eternal life. Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Christ gives him the assurance today with me in paradise of, of a salvation. What assurance to have on the cross. He's dying. He deserves the death. And yet he recognizes who Christ is. And again, this is the issue of faith here. That's happening. So there's a lesson here on, on salvation in this repentant thief here that is being put on display. So every eye that focuses in on the cross, what do they see here? They see the issue is always faith. Not water baptism, not keeping com- co- uh, ceremonies or anything. It's faith. And what he does, what this thief does here, is he does what the little flock has to do in that he separates himself away from the apostate nation. Acts 2, Peter tells him to save thyself from this untoward generation. Now, you can't save yourself from hell, death, and the lake of fire. Okay? But you can do what? Save yourself by separating away. And that's what this man does here. Uh, You're in Luke. Hold on to 23. Come back to chapter 7. Again, this is what the little flock is doing here. By the way, this is what John's baptism was really all about. Uh, Luke 7, 29. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. Now, when they justify God, that word justified, declared to be right, they're saying God is right. We have to get out of that over there, that vain religious apostate nation, and we need to come over here and identify with the, the, the Messiah and the little flock, the believing remnant, however you want to call them. The Lord calls them both. And then how we do that by being baptized of John. So the baptism is a separation. But that's what baptism in Scripture always is. No matter the form of it, it's always an issue of separation, of identification. Baptism first really shows up with Moses and Aaron and Aaron in the priesthood. And what were they doing? They were separating Aaron and his boys away from, out from all the other to be the priest. How did they do it? Well, there was a washing and then there was a, a blood sacrifice and all the, that event there. By the way, verse 30 But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves. How? Being not baptized of him. 
So John's baptism was really a separation of the believing part of the nation from the unbelieving part of the so back in Luke 23 when this guy says wait a minute verse 40 dost not thou fear God seeing thou art in the same condemnation we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds but this man had done nothing amiss he's separating himself out then he turns to Christ you know and he makes this public confession of Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I mean, think about what this man knows or has come to put together, okay? Now, by the way, how he does it, Scripture is silent. It's just that he does, okay? What does he know? Well, he knows who Christ is. What did he just call him? Lord. He just called him Jehovah. Lord, you're Messiah. You're Jehovah, see? Then he says, remember me. He knows that the Lord is the Messiah, and he's the one that I need. Then he says, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He, he knew death wasn't the end of the story. See, He, knew, he knows there's a when thou comest in the kingdom. He knows there's a future, a kingdom to come. He knows there's a second coming of Christ when thou comest. You see, he fully believed in the kingdom program of Israel. He was right there. A lot. He's got a lot of information on board. Now, again, Scripture is silent of how he got it and where it came from. But in his public confession, what is he's got it. And then the Lord answers with that assurance of, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So when you look, when we look at the cross, there's a te- the testimony is there. And the testimony is to the fact that no matter where you are in Scripture, the issue is, and always was, and always will be, faith in the Word of God. If you want to have uh, acceptance before God, you want to have eternal life, all right, you have to have faith in the Word of God to you in the moment, no matter where you're at. I, I spend Tuesdays uh, meeting with the gentleman in uh, Tuesday mornings in Norway, so we have to do in the morning because he's nine hours ahead of me, and we were discussing Noah and Genesis and so forth, and what... Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Do you know what Noah preached? Wrath, judgment. <laughs> you go read Jude and you read Enoch, and Enoch is, you know, you're guilty, you're near sinners, and you get. But what did Noah do? Why was Noah a preacher of righteousness? What did God tell Noah to do? Build the ark, build the boat. Noah, he, he just goes and does it, see. Positive response to the word of God to him. Abraham's the same way. And so forth. Come over to John chapter 6. So what usually comes up about the repentant thief is that he was not water baptized. John chapter number 6. And uh, we'll, look, we'll go back here to Mark 16 in just a second. But look at John chapter 6. And there's a reason why that is really of no import. One, you can't get off the cross and get baptized and crawl back up. It's just not going to happen. Okay. But look at verse 47, John 6, 47. Verily, verily, by the way, when the Lord repeats himself, pay attention, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. What did that thief believe? Lord, remember me when when thou comest in thy kingdom. He's right there. But what is the issue? Believing on me. Faith. Paul in Romans 1 quoting Habakkuk 2, says that the just shall live by his faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4. Paul says the just shall live by faith, but okay. Galatians, Paul quotes it. The principle throughout all of Scripture is no matter where you're at in the dispensations is believing 
in what the Word of God in that program is talking about. What is God saying to them? Flip back to Mark 16. When we get over to Mark 16, we'll have a little, uh, a little fun here with some of this. Mark 16, 16. Because it, it, the verses say what the verses say. It's very fascinating to me when you talk to people and they come in to understand right division and then they get, well, you know, you said, but the verses still say the same thing. I, and then change the verse, Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that, what? that believe. Now, the issue is, the first issue is what? Believing. Because if you don't believe, what are you? You're damned. doesn't matter whether you're baptized or not, but what is the word, what is the word of God to the folks here in Mark 16? You're going to believe, and then you're going to get baptized, okay? But if you don't believe, the baptism just got you wet. That's all it did to you. Baptism doesn't give you, give them eternal life. What, what does is believing. Believing gets the job done. Um, by the way, come over to 1 Peter. Oh, I got to find it. Maybe 2. You know how you have a verse come through there and you just kind of latch on to it, and then you go, okay, where was that at again? Uh, anyway, all right, Mark 16. So what you have... Somebody's vibrating. I can hear it. Is that me? No, it's not me. Okay, back to Mark 16. On your way back, stop at Acts 2. Acts 2. See, the issue in, with eternal life is believing. Acts 2, verse 40, this is the verse a minute ago, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Again, how, how are they going to do that? You can't save yourselves unto eternal life from the power of sin and death and hell, yet there is something here that causes them to get out of that untoward generation, which is the issue of baptism being identified with the Messiah and the little flock. You remember in Matthew 3 when John the Baptist is teaching, uh, baptizing the viper generation of vipers who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then in verse 11, he gives three baptisms, baptism with water. John's doing, then the, when, the, when Jesus comes, there's the Holy Spirit and then that baptism of fire. You see, that untoward generation, that group that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on, get out of that group and get into the group that's going to go into the kingdom and inherit the kingdom. And how do we do that? We do it by baptism. And by John's baptism, water baptism specifically, now you have the identity of that group that would, that would be saved from the wrath of God, not unto eternal life. That's the believing part. The baptism part comes in and takes care of the identification issue. Man, that verse in 1 Peter, it's got to be in 1 Peter. Isn't that the beatness thing? Yeah, it might be. Yeah, 321. There you go. I'd get there eventually. Because I was, I was just reading this because we were talking about Noah. But if in verse 20, 1 Peter 3.20, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing within wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. By the way, the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. Genesis 6 verse 3 says that was 120 years. So with Noah, God set up a delay, a delay mechanism. I'm, Noah, I'm going to judge man. I'm going to wipe man out. But we're going to do it in 120 years here. 120 years in Genesis 6 is not the lifespan of man. That's the long-suffering time. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? 120 years. When he was done, Methuselah dies. Now judgment comes. 
Now watch verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now watch. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. That's your sin problem. Okay, but what is it? It's a, it's a sign of a good conscience toward God. Good conscience how? I'm obeying God's word. God's word to me, if I live back here, is to, I'm going to go do what? I'm going to believe. I'm going to repent. I'm going to believe. And then I'm going to go get John's baptism. See? Now, when you come back to Mark, 5, Mark 16, again, that's what he just said. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Saved how? Saved one way from life uh, uh, unto eternal life, and then saved from that wrath to come. Therefore, verse 17, these, th- these signs shall follow them that believe. Notice it doesn't say believe and are baptized. It just says believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, and they shall speak with new tongues, and they shall take up servant, and all of that is functionality out in the 70th week that they're going to need. So when you come back to chapter 15 and Mark here, it, it, it doesn't matter what you do, okay? If you don't have faith in God's word, your activity then is of no value. It's useless. Now, God's word to you and I today is faith and faith alone. There's no, Romans 3.28, we conclude, therefore, uh, that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. We don't do anything, it's just faith. These guys are completely different. Israel's different. Israel's got to have faith, and then they've got to carry out the activity. And literally, with the Lord, he adds one more step in that, and that now is the spiritual component and so forth, the heart issue. So 15.27. And when they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. Why did they do that? Why is this here? Verse 28, that the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressor. The two thieves are are key here because they represent the two groups within Israel spiritually. They represent the issue of the unbelieving element, the apostate nation, the railer, the, the mockery, and then they represent the ones who, who leave that and believe and separate themselves out away from that. So verse 29, and, and, and again, I, I, I just think about it. They weren't doing this and saying, hey, if we, we got to do this so we can fulfill Isaiah 53, 12. No, they were doing it as mockery. They were doing it as as just something that they were going to do. It just so happened that it fulfilled Scripture. Verse 29, and they that passed by railed on him. Now, you know what? Railing. Always, Paul says, those that rail on, don't even go eat lunch. You know, it's kind of tough to eat lunch with somebody who's always yelling at you, you know. They're mocking him. They're, 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 and, and they that pass by, these are the people. They're wagging their heads, you know, tut, 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 shame, shame, shame. You know, you just want to want to smack them when they do that, <laughs> you know. And then they say something, saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. And they all, you know, wag, wagging their head, pointing their finger. Oh, you said you would destroy the temple and in three days raise it up. But come on, build, build this it up. And, and, and you look at that and you go, well, first of all, we have issues here. The people are passing by and they're quoting the misquote that they got from the religious leaders, that they got from the false witnesses in the phony trial. Now, come over to John 2 and see what he really said. John chapter 2. You see, the, the misquote, and by the way, this all starts in Genesis 3 with Satan. Yea, hath God said, and then Eve immediately misquotes what the Lord said. 
You know, she had touch, took out freely. You know, she just messed it up, see. Here, the, the, the people, this is the people, they have bought into the spin of the religious leaders, and now they're making out like it's, you know, something that, that uh, you know, it really wasn't said that way. John 2.19. Now, John, he's dealing with the, the religious leaders, and he, said, he answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, who, who, who is doing the destroying in verse 19? Not the Lord, the religious leaders are, okay? If you look back up at verse 14, or well, verse 15, 13, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and, and doves and changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out. He drives out the commercialism. See? Now, later when he does the second cleaning out, not only does he drive out the commercialism again, but then he shuts it all down and causes no priestly activity to happen. The, 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 the leadership is the ones destroying the temple. But what did they say? Thou sayest, Thou destroyed the temple. You see, they made it. They said, you, Jesus, you, you destroyed the temple. You said you'd destroy the temple and raise it up again. And that's not what was said at all. He said, you're destroying it, and I will raise it up. Now, what they didn't catch is verse 21. Well, verse 20. Then said the Jews, 40 and 6 years was this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. See, by the way, that helps you with Luke, with Mary and Gabriel calling the Lord a holy thing. The holy thing is his body. Hebrews, quoting Psalms, he says, A body thou hast prepared for me. A bo- the temple body right there. So come back to Mark, come over to chapter 14, just to remind ourselves of this. You see, they are, in 1529, you said, you're going to destroy the temple and build it back in three days, so let's get on with it. Show us your stuff. You said you can do this. Let's see it. See, they're mock, it's mockery. You said this, now let's get on with it. Let's see you do it. But that's not what he said. But that's Mark 14. Here's what was said in, in verse 55 in the, uh, the phony trial. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, so you've got to have two or three witnesses, and they're supposed to have independent agreement. They have none of that. So they say, verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witnesses agree together. You see, the religious leaders have prepped the witnesses to say, he said this, don't you remember, wink, wink, hush, hush, here's a few extra bucks for the, you know, whatever. So they get up and they make this, but then they don't even say the same story right. They got the, they're, they're in disarray here. The false witnesses, no agreement. We heard him say it. Notice how they said that. In ver, we heard him say, I will destroy. He didn't say that. He said, you're going to destroy this. This should be my father's house. You've made it into a den of thieves. It's not my father's house now. And now it's your house, and your house is going to be desolate. So the religious leaders have, come back there to chapter 15 in verse 31, likewise also the chief priest mocking. Now we're going to have the religious leaders here. The people are out here repeating the storyline. They got the bullet points, the speaking points. They're still, they're just, and what he's going to do here, again, they miss the fact that he's talking about his body, resurrection, not the building. But what does the religious leaders care about? Just the building. 
They don't care about the Lord and him dying. They didn't care about him being born. None of that. They're not worried about that. They don't care what he said. All they care about is their temple because it was their temple. And that emphasis now is on the building. And by the way, if the emphasis is on the building and not on the value of the truth of life in Christ, then it may ought to make you go pause a moment. Now, we own a building, but we're not about the building, but you got to keep the building up, you know. My dad said owning a building is like an employee. It's constantly an upkeep. <laughs> and that's what it is. It's a tool, okay, and I'm glad to have it because there were many years when we lugged everything in and set everything up, and, you know, it's good not to break your backs. But uh, come over to Matthew 24. The, the point here is, is that the mockery is really coming out of a lie that they've bought into. Now, think about the temple just here real quickly. Matthew 24, verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, you go over there to Luke 21, and they say, see how beauty, the beauty of them, how beautiful they are. Now, the guy leading this, by the way, is Judas Iscariot, okay? Because Judas is from Jerusalem. The other 11 are from up north. They, couldn't, they didn't know their way around Jerusalem very well, especially the temple complex, but Judas did. Judas is there, and they're looking at the glory. But the thing is, is look back up at verse 37 of chapter 23, because look at what the Lord just said to them. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. They're missing this. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. What did they do? I would have gathered you. I would have saved you like a mother hen does with her chicks. I would have protected you, but you would not. You rejected me. Therefore, when I leave, the glory of God is leaving. And you know what? That temple is just four walls. It's hollow. It's desolate. It's empty. And you know what? That made them mad. Paul says in Galatians, he says, I profited in the Jews' religion. It's not God's religion any longer. It's the Jews' religion. They've polluted it. They've taken it and they've made it of none effect, Mark has already told us. So when they come together here, back in Mark 15 now, they're mad. When they get together and they're going to get Christ, they, they, that, that anger, because... The testimony, remember we read that stuff in John about if I hadn't come and preached, then their sin would not have been revealed. You see, the Lord, he's revealing their, 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 uh, their, their sin, their vanity, their emptiness. And they hated him for it. And they're going to get him. But you know what, though? That's what religion says. Remember in the book of Judges, Micah, and he, he's the, the tribe of Dan, and, and Baal worship is getting in. And uh, Micah's got, he's the first one on the block to have a priest and call him father and have a house of gods and all this stuff. And then Dan shows up and says, hey, you're the preacher over a family. A bigger ministry would be over the whole tribe, don't you think? And he says, hang on a minute, let me ask the Lord. He goes in and he packs up all the goods and he, Lord said, yeah, let's go. And off you go, you know, truck. And Micah comes and says, what are you doing with all my stuff? It's all about the stuff took it away. And that's really what they are. So the temple was beautiful, but there's no glory of God in it. There's no God in it. It's just the Baal, the vain religious system. Come back to Mark 15. So first they misquote him. You said, again, they're not interested in what was really, what, what was really said, what the truth is. They don't get the message straight. And it's all designed to protect their stuff, 
their religion. We got to get rid of him because he's taken away our stuff. <laughs> Sounds like a bunch of little boys in the sandbox. He's got my stuff, you know, and that's exactly what they're doing. So verse 31, likewise also the chief priests. So the people say, okay, they got it from the religious leaders. Now the religious leaders come and they're mocking said among themselves with the scribes. He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross and we, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. Isn't that interesting? They, we read over there, the Lord at this point will say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But yet, when you read Mark here, they know what they're doing. Okay? And the reason that the Lord is going to make that claim for them is, is the blindness of their unbelief. We'll see that in just a minute. But look at what they do know. In verse 31, he saved others. You see, they have seen him work the miracles that demonstrated himself to be who God said he was. In Acts 2, Peter says, by miracles, God demonstrated that he is Messiah. They know that he's proved himself. What has he done? He's come in, he's answered every prophetic utterance about what the Messiah would do. Then, verse 32, let Christ, the King of Israel, descend. They knew who he claimed to be. So they knew, they saw him demonstrate who he was, but they also knew he claimed to be. What did he claim to be? King of the Jews. Their problem, they saw him, they heard his claim, they just didn't believe him. And it's the blindness of their unbelief that caused them to not know what they do. You see, they knew that they were crucifying someone who claimed to be king of the Jews and proved himself to be that Messiah. They just didn't want any part of it. They didn't believe him. Uh, come over to John uh, chapter 4. John chapter 4. And that's what's happening here. They see, then he says, do this so we see and believe. You remember uh, Lazarus and, and the father in Abraham's bosom and the conversation between Abraham and, the, and the, the rich man? And they said, send somebody up from the dead and they'll believe it. And Abraham says, no, they won't. Because they're not going to believe the real guy that's going to die here in a minute, a few chapters. But what? They got Moses, let him read. They've got the word of God. The word of Peter in 1 Peter says we have a more sure word of prophecy. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it, but the more sure foundation is that written word. John 4, if you look at verse 48, see and believe. Paul says that the Jews require a sign. John 4, 48, then said Jesus unto him, he's talking up here about the nobleman, Okay, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. You see, he's dealing with the nobleman here, and what does he lay out? This is not a compliment, by the way. It's rather a statement of their hard-heartedness. They were not going to simply believe the word. They needed to see a sign, and they needed to see a miracle in order to believe. Now, he does it, but they don't what? They don't believe. So when you, when, when you, when you come back to Mark 15, and they, he says, hey, let's see a sign, and we'll believe, that's not going to happen. That's not going to be the case. See, Isaiah 53 says, who has believed our report? They didn't. What they do? They crucify him. So this issue here is, again, a statement of unbelief that had filled the heart of those who were killing someone that they knew proved himself to be and claimed to be. They knew something was up, but they just weren't having any part of it. So they're mockering, mocking him. And they that were crucified, uh, back in Mark 15, 32, 
with him reviled him. That'll be our thieves there, the one, the conversation. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So now we're at the sixth hour till the ninth hour. So from 9 a.m. to noon, Christ is being mocked. He's being persecuted by men, by, by man, for doing and fulfilling out the will of the Father. He's In those three hours, he's going through all of that is persecution, mockery, reviling, all of that as he sits there and he's, he's doing the will of the Father. Now at noon, verse 33, the sixth hour was come. There was darkness until the ninth hour. So from noon to, till 3 p.m. now, there's darkness. And it's an interesting thing about darkness. For three hours here in this darkness, here is where Paul, would, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made to be sin. Now, how you know that is the next verse, verse 34. What does he say? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Takes you back to Psalms 22 and so forth. We'll get into all that next time because we're going to catch the darkness and be done here, I think. But So there's an issue here that now in this three hours of darkness, here's where Christ is being judged by the Father, where sin is being judged in order to accomplish the eternal redemption for all of humanity ultimately. So there's a division in the, in, the, in the six hours. The first three, he's persecuted by man for doing God's will. And the second three now, he's going he, to be persecuted by the wrath of God. The cup of the wrath, that, that cup, he's going to go drink it. That he said, that thing in the, in the garden, he says, Father, is there, if there's any way, can you not have this cup be? And he doesn't even let the Father answer. He says, but not my will, but thy will be done. He knew there was no answer. He knew, and the question there wasn't, is there a way out? The question was, Father, are you sure we got to go through with this? And off he went. You know, he didn't even give the Father a chance to doubt it at all. Now, the darkness, and that issue of darkness that's happening here. Uh, if you come over to 1 John chapter 1, think about darkness here for just a minute. Dar uh, 1 John chapter 1. And verse 5, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declared unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So the darkness here, it's as if God drew a curtain over the sun, withdrew himself from the scene. In scripture, nighttime, darkness is, an ish, is, a, is a picture of the judgment of God. Now, here in Mark and in the Gospels where we're at at Calvary, it's a judgment of God on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ on the cross is suffering under darkness in the three hours where that judgment on sin is, being is taking place. So God is light, and there's no darkness at all. So to have darkness is to have the absence of God. God is going to pull back out of. The first place we see darkness is Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. Go back there real quickly. Okay? Genesis, and I, don't, I, just, I want you to catch what's happening here more than getting bogged down in a, in a lot of uh, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So think about this. First time darkness shows up, verse 2, the earth is without form. It has no shape. It has no structure. And it is void. It's empty. And darkness is upon the face of the deep. So the indication is, is that creation is, is not filled up, it's not formed, and God isn't there. He's out of it. Well, why would he be out of it? 
Be well, because the fall of Satan happens between 1-1 and 1-2. And darkness is a form of judgment. By the way, how you know that, come over to Isaiah 45. Uh, one of these days we'll study the gap theory. Everybody uses the gap theory and uh, it talks about it. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, not to get on a platform and start yakking away at it. I believe in it. I believe the fall of Satan happens between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. But what they do is, is the science-loving Christians, false science-loving Christians, and they use that stuff to battle evolution. When all you got to do is read Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. <laughs> and it deals with evolution. In the beginning, God created then why are we arguing about evolution? See, it's right there, you know. But they use this stuff. They use Bible verses. I just read a book. You guys are aware of the flat earth, all that and stuff. I just read a, an article by a guy who's a flat earther, and he's quoting verses back and forth. He's yanked everyone out of its context, everyone out away from what the passage is actually talking about, using them, and he's using them to say that, you know, it's all this stuff. And I go in and I study, I look at the, and I, and, and I almost, I yelled at the guy through the, through the computer, <laughs> you know, because he's, he's using verses, and what will happen is someone coming along will say, well, see, he's using verses, he's got to be right, and he's not right. And, and here, Isaiah 45, verse 18, okay, that's all the, the preaching on the platform, okay, or the uh, soapbox, all right. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens... Isaiah 45, 18. God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Notice that. When God created, he didn't create it empty. He created it not without form and void. He created it what? To be inhabited. Now, the initial inhabitants were the angelic realm. But in Genesis 1-2, what's the condition of the earth? It is without form and void. It's empty. It's got no, it's got no functionality to form, functionality to it. And then there's darkness, see? Darkness is that judgment. So obviously, originally created, and then something happened that now he's got to go and recreate. The darkness is a result of the judgment back in Genesis 1-2 of God against sin and rebellion. And again, that's that fall of Satan. and the Because you and I are not here yet. Man's not created yet. <laughs> By the way, oh man, I'm so tempted. Go back to Genesis. It just, it just, I just think of stuff. Look at Genesis 2 uh, 17, because they make such ridiculous statements. Romans 5.12, for by one man sin entered into death, uh, uh, sin entered into the world, so then death passed upon all men. See, there was no death prior to Adam. Are you sure? 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely what? Obviously, Adam and Eve understood what dying was. Who introduced death into humanity? Satan did, because he fell. He was kicked out. Why was hell created? For Satan and his angels. What stopped the rebellion in Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, in the gap there, was the creation of hell. So death was there. Satan's there when man is created. Death is on the table. It wasn't made for man yet until, I see, I just, hey, get me started. Why did you do that? Come on, uh, come back to Genesis uh, uh, 15. The next time darkness shows up. So there are two kinds of darkness in Scripture. Genesis 15. There is the physical kind where the sun goes out, okay, and then there's the spiritual kind. Genesis 15, verse 12, you have Abraham here and the Lord making the promise and out. Verse 12, and when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. You see that horror? Not just darkness, but 
a horror of darkness. Now, he's describing Egypt, but what Abraham is literally going through is he's going through what his people, his seed, are going to go through when they're cast out amongst the Gentiles. So Abraham is experiencing exactly what his descendants are going to go through, and it's described as a horror of great darkness. Come over to Exodus 10. Exodus chapter 10. Moses here. Exodus 10, verse 21. Exodus 10, 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thy hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. So a horror of darkness. It's not just darkness. Have you ever been in a basement and the lights turned out on you? And you can't see in front of your hand? In front, I have. Now, if you do that as an adult and you got kids, what do the kids do? They scream. Boys, too. You know, until you flip the light back on and go, boo, you know. Well, that's what, that it can, it's, it's, it's something that's not good. This here now is something that can be felt. Come over to Jude, right before the Revelation. Jude 13. So darkness, there's the physical darkness, but then there's this darkness spiritually. Jude 13, raging waves of sea, foaming out of their shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Isn't that interesting? Come back over to Luke 23, because now we're over. We've got to wrap it up. We're not quite an hour, but Luke 23. I just want you to see this issue of the darkness, the blindness, the horror, the stuff that can be felt. When that hits there at the noon hour, going to go run now till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that is an indication that God is doing something, and it isn't pretty. There's judgment happening. And at Calvary, there's darkness over the land. The sun's blacked out. You can't, by the way, when the sun's blacked out, uh, Luke 23, when the sun's blacked out, what can you not do? You can't tell time, can you? you it's, it's, you're disoriented. You don't know how long things are going to last. So here's the Lord on Calvary. Spiritually, he's in the battle with Satan. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then yet as he looks out, he can't see how long this is lasting. It's going on and on and on and on and on. We were in the Grand Canyon. The evening, the first evening, we're like, got to get up at four. So what's in your mind? Get up at four. Get up at four. Get, don't oversleep. Don't oversleep. Can't go to sleep. Finally go to sleep. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. It's, you know, my body, it's got to be time. And I wake up and I look up and the sky is full of stars. And I go, and I look down at the watch. It was midnight. <laughs> I'd been asleep for three or four, for four hours. And I'm like, oh, I got four more. I roll back over, you know. And then they're like, Rick, it's time to get up. I didn't want to get up. But you, you, you get disoriented. Luke 23. Christ, the physical darkness, no end to it. Luke, uh, well, Luke 22. Let's go there first. Luke 22, verse uh, 52. Luke 22, 52. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which came to him, be, be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves or in the garden. Verse 53, when I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and, notice, the power of darkness, the spiritual darkness, the blindness of their spiritual unbelief. In Colossians 1, Paul says that we've been translated from the power of of darkness. We've been delivered from that. Ephesians 6, the rulers of darkness of this world. And so that you've got this spiritual component. Now, chapter 23, verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Notice something there. The sixth Darkness from the sixth hour till the ninth hour, 
the sun was darkened, there's the physical darkness, but then there's also something else happening. In verse 44, is the spiritual darkness. And this happens, and this happens. And in that darkness, that spiritual battle that starts in Genesis 3, verse 15, where where the Lord says to Satan, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, and he's going to crush your head. And all through the life of Christ, he's been prodding and poking at Satan. And Satan's been poking back. And now, just as Isaiah, as he says in Isaiah, who can contend with me? Who? Let's get on with this. And the adversary is on. And the battle for the souls of humanity rages, comes to a a crescendo peak moment here. Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he won the battle. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And the it is his cross. And the conflict, Christ wins it. Now, come back to Mark 15. We'll have to pick up here because time is gone. Mark 15, he's going to say, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him. They miss it completely, what's what's going on. See, In the darkness, you got the physical. Again, verse 34, 35, they still... Just spiritually blinded, they don't get it. So you've got the two kinds of darknesses. One, the physical, yeah, the sun went out, but then now there's that spiritual warfare happening. Psalms 22, 1 begins to describe it, where the adversary and the Savior come together in a pitch, and in the moment, Psalm 69, Psalms 22, when he feels like in, the, in his weakest moment, Satan thinks he's got him down and got him good, dragging him, and then the Lord wins the battle and defeats the adversary. And again, we'll, we'll get into all of that next time. Seven times the Lord speaks from Calvary. Starts with Father. In the middle, it's my God, my God. It went from the relationship changed. Why? He was made to be sin. And then he's going to come over and says, Father, here I come. I'm coming home. And he gives up the ghost. Now that relationship is back. All of that is on Calvary. He doesn't die and then go and pay for sin in Abraham's bosom or in the torment side. All that's just theology born on the back of a napkin in some pub somewhere. Scripture, he does everything on the cross. So that when he does say it is finished, guess what? It is finished. If if he goes to hell, torment side, Abraham's, to finish the deal then when he says it is finished, is a lie. So it isn't finished. I got more to do. And he says, nope, it is done, and there we are. So we'll pick up in verse 34, hopefully next time, and I'll try to stay out of the controversial stuff, okay? But you have to understand what people do with that stuff is they use that as a, I know more than you know, and really they know nothing when it comes to Scripture. They're the... The chief priests are the same way here, the religious leaders. They're just trying to protect their stuff, okay? By the way, I will say, if you believe in flat earth and all that stuff, that's between you and God. When you get to the judgment, I don't believe in it. I believe in the gap theory. If you don't believe in the gap theory, that's between you and God. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll see that it is what he says, and you'll be wrong, and I'll be right. I mean, you know, I'm just kidding. Okay, so don't write me or email me and say, hey, you know, you, you know, blah. I get enough of that already. But it's just something that when you read the verses and you let them say what they say, leave them where they're at. There's something going on in creation that's far more whether what 
the conspiracy thought is all about. So, and besides, Paul tells you and I that as soldiers of the Christ, a soldier doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of this world. And the war that we're to be warring is a better war than all of that mess anyway, because he's going to fix it all when he comes back. <laughs> anyway, dearly Father, we thank you for the word, Lord. We thank you for the book of Mark, for the ability to look in and to see the details of how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And that as we learn these and as we look into them and we see the pictures and we see the details, we would just rejoice in that it is your wisdom on display and your glory that's going to be accomplished. In your name we pray. Amen.